Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back. This is the live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from the rooftop studio here in Sadia, Morocco, looking at the world from a different perspective and hoping that some of the folks back in the heart of empire, the belly of the beast, uh, will maybe learn something from the kind of guests I bring on who have a whole lot to say that's way outside the mainstream media box. Well, the big issue now, of course, that we're all uh, worrying about and upset about, uh, stressing about, um, it's, it's no longer COVID, it's no longer Russia versus Ukraine, it's this genocide that's going on in Gaza. And what's the best way to stop it, or is there a, a way to stop it? Right now, it's looking pretty grim because the Zionists don't seem to have you know, there's there's not no obstacle to them just considering continuing to obliterate civilians, and they're losing their stand-up fight on the ground against the uh, Hamas fighters, but they're not showing any indication of stopping uh, mass murdering civilians, and this is going to lead to a lot of animosity, which could continue for generations. How can this dynamic ever change? How could this situation ever be resolved? There have been a lot of proposals, and one of the better ones I've seen is a new book by Mahmoud uh, O.D. He's the author of 2048, A Manifesto for the One-State Solution in Israel-Palestine. And it's uncommonly uh, sensible and pretty pretty, uh, low-key, rational, and gets to the heart of a lot of the biggest problems that are preventing uh, progress and and (coughs) positive movement on this issue. So uh, it's an honor to bring on uh, Mahmoud for the first time on Truth Jihad Radio. Assalamu alaikum, Mahmoud. How are you? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Kevin, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's nice to speak to you. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I'm uh, very impressed by your book. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, great, great uh, introduction to the topic, really, for people who don't know much about it. They can learn uh, a lot about the background and the problems as well as the potential solution. So how, how did you come to write it? Well, basically, it took the 2021 escalation because uh, for your listeners, if they're unfamiliar with me, I'm a Palestinian who was born in Haifa, which is in Israel, uh, and I'm currently uh, currently based in the United Kingdom. So we've witnessed many wars on an ongoing basis and uh, politics is very much a daily thing from uh, since you're a young kid uh, growing up, you see all of these wars, all of these escalations. So in 2021, I was like, okay, here we go again. Another war, another escalation. Then we go back to to square one. Uh, no real solutions proposed. So I was like, um, let, let me just write a book because from my perspective, it's very straightforward. It's, it's a human cause. It's a matter of equality, human rights that should be uh, by the 21st century now, uh, things that are universal. And unfortunately, they're not. And not many people are, are speaking about that. So 
My proposal isn't something new. As a matter of fact, in 1948, when uh, Israel was established, it was established from a one side, from the Zionist movement side. And back then, because Zionists like to sell the narrative of we proposed the state back then, but they refused. The Arab states back then, the Palestinians, even the Jewish people who used to live in historical Palestine before Zionism, in collaboration with the Nazis, by the way, in many cases, uh, started bringing Jews to Europe because many people are also not familiar with the fact that Zionism was the solution, the final solution for the Jewish problem as Hitler prescribed it at the time. So the Arab nations back then and the Palestinians, they didn't want an ethno state. They wanted a whole state for everyone because Jews, Arabs and Muslims, uh, Christians, I mean, sorry, they lived peacefully for hundreds of years, whether it's in Palestine, whether it's in Morocco, whether it's in the Hejaz, everywhere. They had problems in Europe. They didn't have problems with us. And obviously we were welcoming anyone who, wanna, who wants to come back then. Um, like, let me give you an example. My native city of Haifa in 1947, we had 75,000 approximately Palestinian Christians and Muslims who were then expelled by these new Zionist immigrants to take the population back to 5,000. Now, my great, great parents, obviously, were some of the few that remained there because they had to keep people to basically be slaves and build up the country, albeit they lived under martial law for a very long time. So the notion of a one state that is for everyone isn't new. I didn't uh, bring something new here. And many people wrote about the subject too. But my intention after the 2021 escalation was to highlight how very basic and straightforward it is. So from my perspective, I decided to put in points that are very straightforward to find a solution, including many key areas that should be highlighted things to do with anti-Semitism, things to do with Zionism, and obviously points to reach a solution which mainly revolve around the refugees and the dismantling of the apartheid state. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we all want the same things. We want rights, we want equality, we want basic human life. Yet Zionism was established on racial supremacy. It was established as a better race controlling a lower grade race. Do you know what I mean? So from my perspective, uh, I just had to put that out. This was my bid done to reach a solution. You know, many people say it's utopic, it's unrealistic, but from my perspective, I don't care how utopic it seems, it shouldn't be sounding utopic because you're talking about equal human rights. And many things that human beings perceived to be utopic previously, like the end of slavery. I mean, America had civil wars because of uh, the abolishment of slavery. Uh, eight, eight hour working days were considered to be utopic. Uh, women voting was considered to be utopic. So uh, from my perspective, it's an implementable solution that is very much realistic. But we need to have our foot down constantly. This shouldn't be a case of there was an escalation, it ended, now we move on. No. What happened on the 7th of October woke the whole world up. And not just the act itself, it's primarily Israel's reaction. Because if Israel stopped on the 7th of October and took a step back 
and recalculated what it's been doing for the past 75 years and proposed a solution because they mainly called for a prisoner swap, we wouldn't have been here. But Israel, I mean, I mentioned this in my previous video yesterday, they, they did Palestine a favor. And I know it might sound insane because they're committing a genocide. But in many ways, they woke the whole world up to the Palestinian cause. So from, from our perspective, from any decent human being perspective, this should be a case where you're at it the whole time. There's a saying in Arabic, uh, You never lose a right as long as there's someone behind it asking for it. And I believe this should be the core issue that decent people uh, like yourself constantly do. And anyone who's concerned with basic human rights continue to do because Israel is doing everyone a favor by making it untenable for it to exist as, as, as it is. Uh, but people like us, we need to continue to call for justice and equality uh, for the Palestinians and for the Israelis so that we can finally reach a solution that's good for everyone. Well, you say the whole conflict can be resolved with one thing, equality. And Absolutely. Maybe, so maybe can you explain what are the major sources of the current system of inequality that's been compared to apartheid? Uh, and of course, now it's reaching genocidal proportions. Well, e equality is very basic. Each and every human being deserves uh, his rights, uh, regardless of their race and ethnicity or religion. And the fact that we have here is Israel was established on, on apartheid, on racial and religious supremacy. Some people call it an ethnocracy. And they obviously sold the idea of having a two-state solution. We all know that Israel doesn't want a two-state solution. Uh, we've had 30, 30 years of negotiations between them and the Palestinian Authority. And we saw where that led to. People in the West Bank are still humiliated on a daily basis. You still have enclaves of settlements in the West Bank where Palestinians are banned from basic rights such as the freedom of movement. You know, some areas of the West Bank, for you to travel uh, from one place to another, which can take half an hour, can take you five to six hours and many points because there are roads that are authorized for Israeli settlers only, and there are uh, semi-roads for Palestinians. They have walls between neighborhoods, between neighbors, between families. When they did their, uh, they called it Chomat Magen, uh, the defense uh, wall, um, about two decades ago. So when you, when you talk about equality, I mean, it's, it's very basic, equal human rights, uh, one man, one vote, and basic human dignity for everyone. And uh, unfortunately, that hasn't been the case for uh, for a very long time. Now, obviously, you need to remember there's a difference between uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, who were born in Israel, like myself, and the over two million people who are still there, and people in the West Bank and Gaza. So uh, the Palestinians who live in Israel, they definitely live un under an apartheid system because there are systematic laws against them. But the situation in, in the West Bank is far worse. I mean, these people can't go out unless they're authorized by, by Israel Israeli authorities. Gaza, it has been 
uh, uh, an open air prison for 17 years. Like it baffles me when I see people and they start the conversation from the 7th of October. Where were you in the past 75 years? Israel right. killed over 100,000 Palestinians up until the 6th of October, following which add 21,000 Palestinians. It expelled 750,000 Palestinians in 1948. Many of them are internally displaced. Uh, it, uh, Gaza has been under siege for 17 years. The people who carried the attacks on Israel on the 7th of October, all of them have lost either a family member or a loved one or many of them. 75% of the population is made up of refugees who were forced out of their homes in 1948 and 1967. So where were all of these people who who are talking about the 7th of October solely as if it's uh, an event that uh, came out of nowhere? Well, there was the Great March of Return, uh, which was meant to be a, a nonviolent protest. And yes. Israelis shot and killed, uh, well, I think, a few hundred people and maimed thousands of people. Deliberately. Uh, they were deliberately shooting them in the knees and deliberately sniping people in the head. Absolutely. Right. Many people don't seem to realize that you know, in the United States, a lot of the ignorant people say, well, why doesn't Palestine follow Gandhi and why isn't there nonviolent uh, activism in Palestine? Well, of course, there's all kinds of nonviolent activism in Palestine. There has been forever. And you just don't yeah. hear about it. And the, the real question they should be asking is, well, why haven't we heard about it? Why? Why didn't we hear about the Great March of Return and the way the Israelis dealt with that? And if if the Western world, especially the U.S., had actually heard about that, maybe October 7th wouldn't have happened. Well, because they don't want you to hear about that. They want you to view these people as subhuman barbaric animals, how they repeat it constantly. That's why um, I, I used to regularly post the daily things that the Palestinians suffer from, like the lack of right to move, how they're humiliated and killed, how the Israeli army fills their water wells with uh, cement, these basic things, they don't, wanna, they don't want you to look at them because, unfortunately, uh, the Western elite, and, and when, when we talk about the West, because I'm a person who believes in, in humanity as a whole, I mean, I talk about the West as in the Western governments who openly declare that they're Zionists, really. They still look at it from a, a, a racial supremacist element. Uh, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. They look at it from uh, an Aryan, uh, world-classly race, as um, Winston Churchill described them, uh, and the barbaric hordes, again, like Winston Churchill described the Palestinians. Uh, they still look at it this way. They don't see them as human beings. So if people don't see that uh, racism and supremacy are very much present in this conflict, I think they're deluded. Uh, Israel is their little baby made out of these enlightened, supposedly uh, Europeans who came to barren land, they dare to say even, or uh, a land without people to people without a land, who are simply uh, promoting democracy, isn't it? Isn't this the narrative that we hear? Uh, so they, do, they don't want you 
to see any human aspect of the Palestinians. And as a matter of fact, if, if, if you listen to the latest, for example, uh, Hamas statements or, or recent kind of um, uh, things that they publish, they, they, they repeatedly say we, we would rather not have this war. We'd rather get our rights without war. But the Zionists have proved again and again that they don't give us the rights, our rights, that we fully deserve as human beings uh, without us fighting them. I mean, they constantly harass them. Uh, they don't leave people alone. If you look at the West Bank, for example, I want to give you Hebron as an example, Al-Khalil. You're talking about 200,000 Palestinians inside the olden city of Hebron. There's a settlement enclave of, of less than approximately a thousand settlers that are protected by like a brigade of army. And they shut down the whole city for these eight, nine hundred settlers who are one of the most vile individuals on earth, by the way. They constantly swear at Palestinians. They abuse them. They burn their crops. They shoot them for fun, many times joined by uh, the Israeli army. And people are unaware of it. So that's why many people are taking a 180 degree um, turn when it comes to this conflict. Uh, even if we talk about the first week of the war, um, add a month to that. And I mean... Some polls in the U.S. are uh, showing that very clearly. If you look at one recent poll, like people's support for the Palestinian resistance has doubled. And I mean, how do you explain that? The only thing that they saw is the actual truth, nothing else. And it only takes for people to see things as they are, if they have any basic human decency. The young people in particular seem to be waking up on this. Uh, there were some polls that shocked a lot of Americans showing that the majority of 18 to 24 year olds uh, is they're basically siding with the Palestinian resistance and they support the elimination of the state of Israel. As Absolutely. Counted. But, but listen, I mean, from amazing. feedback that I'm getting, even the older generation, they're, they're also waking up. Yes. And, and do you think that the social media uh, is part of that? That is, people are getting sort of unfiltered stuff. Uh, they, they see the videos of, uh, of what's actually happening, which challenges the way the media is framing it. Oh, 100 percent. I think social media contributed to a very high degree. Uh, I mean, listen, social media isn't fully um, free, so to speak, but... It has indeed um, offered people the alternative, the, the actual truth. Because when, when you start looking at the media and then go compare it to what actually uh, people are sending you from the ground, you start asking yourself, where do I live? Is this some sort of an alternative reality? Is this a different world? So people start asking themselves questions like, why? Why are they hiding this? And I mentioned this a lot. And obviously, you need to be careful with many things you say in social media. 
but indeed it has turned the table upside down on the uh, mainstream media narrative. I mean, I constantly have people telling me on my YouTube channel, I stopped watching the BBC. I stopped watching uh, Fox News. I'm not listening to anything. They're boycotting uh, mainstream media. There were even calls to boycott uh, intellectual uh, personalities on uh, social media who have more popularity because they're realizing that they're only intended to feed them poison and manipulation that serves the elite. It's as simple as that. Well, what do you think about the controversy in the academy, especially in the United States right now, but also in, in Europe? There has been a lot of pushback against uh, professors and, and other people in, in academic positions who side with Palestine. I was talking about this with Dr. Pierce Robinson in the first hour, and it, it occurs to me that it's a very strange situation right now in the American Academy, anti-racism is the philosophy of the moment. Everybody has to be an anti-racist. And there's been all you know, the support for the George Floyd protests and all that sort of thing. The Black Lives Matter movement has, has made uh, anti-racism the thing, the current thing. However, the, the, there's a contradiction uh, around Palestine, which is that the non-white world basically sides with the Palestinian resistance. Certainly the two million people in the Muslim world uh, are nearly unanimous in siding with Palestine. And most of the global South, that is the, the less than fully white world, mostly sides with Palestine. So you have a situation where nobody is allowed to express the views of the global majority, that is the non-white majority, um, in American and European universities, and yet they pretend that they are the biggest anti-racists on the planet. It's uh, strikes me it's as, absurd. as a very strange contradiction. It's it's absurd, but it just shows you how much um, supremacy and racism are still prevalent. I mean, let's not forget in the Muslim world we faced just over twenty years of Islamophobia, ever since the false flag of nine eleven. And them blaming, you know, some people with turbans and beards and uh, supposedly coming up with this massive operation that we everyone with with a bit of knowledge and background and basic research can see that the Americans, uh, the American administration was complicit in. We've been facing demonization ever since. It's not just with Palestine and with the with the growth of the anti-racist and um, woke, if, if, if it's correct to um, uh, label as such, um, they, they wanted to initially exclude Islam from it, let alone speak about um, Palestine. So they're obviously abusing uh, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, it's, it's such a, in, in many ways, it's a misconstrued and deliberately manipulated term, number one, because if you want to refer to um, someone against uh, Jews, you'd say anti-Judaism. You'd say Islamophobia, anti-Christian, for example. Why is it anti-Semitic? Because this term was made up in the 20th century that was deliberately intended to connect the Jews with the land and make them an ethnicity. 
whereas the truth couldn't be further away from it. Judaism is a religion. And Semitism, when you talk about Semitism, whether it's a direct link to uh, Sam himself or uh, the native land of Asham, which is the Levant, what do uh, Eastern Europeans have to do with it? Or white people from Europe, for example. I'm Semitic. I was born there. You know what I mean? My great-great-grandparents were living there. So they, they deliberately did that to connect, uh, mix up, obviously to serve Zionism, but to mix up uh, Judaism as a religion uh, and make it as somewhat an, as an ethnicity. Well, I, I think it actually sense. goes back. It goes back to the 19th century. Uh, it certainly became a big thing in the 20th. That uh, the origins of anti-Semitism actually go back to about the about the middle of the 19th century, I believe, and it was related to the discipline of philology or the study of languages. And they discovered these language families and the Semitic mm. language family, uh, which includes Arabic, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and so on. Uh, is, you know, it, it's, it, well, you know, it's spread primarily in the Middle East, but they started, what happened was that these racial white, these kind of pro-Nordic, pro-white uh, racialists um, in the sciences, and of course this was all very respectable back in those days, they believed that uh, Semitic peoples were sort of one step down from white peoples, and some of them uh, labeled Jews as being part of this alleged Semitic group, but it was all based on a confusion between language and race or genetics. And in fact, those two things are not that super closely related. Uh, mm. And and so that led to this notion that anti-Semitism is about race, when in fact it's all based on the Semitic language category. Um, mm. You know, here here in Morocco, the main language uh, there are lots of languages, of course, but the the national language is Arabic. So yeah. Moroccans, in that sense, are Semites. However, yeah. if you did genetic analysis on them, there'd be a lot of probably Berber would be the main thing, and then there would be some there'd be some European, some Sub-Saharan, some you know some Middle Eastern or West Asian. Uh, my wife's family actually includes uh, people from Turkey from Armenia, and even from Belushistan, uh, her last name yeah. is Belushi. So, mm. uh, so, so this notion of uh, direct connection between sort of language and race, all this was all part of 19th century racism. You know, that's where this mm. anti-Semitism notion came out. And it's totally inaccurate today because, mm. you know, the people that don't like Jews, it's not because they have a racial prejudice against Jews in most cases. It's more about Jewish culture, um, Jewish behavior, etc., etc., and then you know, of course, we're not even allowed to mention the fact that there are any issues to discuss around Jewish culture and Jewish behavior, or we will be accused of being racist, even though we're yeah, not talking yeah. about race. Whereas I think you know, uh, it, it shouldn't be the case, really. And uh, to be fair, I always distinguish between Zionism and and uh, Judaism because it's important too. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think the Zionist movement is the is the side that pushes this narrative. Uh, because even, even when I used to live in Israel, you'd see many Israelis who were born and raised there and born and raised on Zionism, uh, criticizing uh, Zionism. You'd have people refusing to go to the army, for example, because there's conscription. And uh, you've had many people who were... Uh, 
Like, take for example, uh, Miko Peled. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Is a very oh, yeah, famous yeah. He's, activist. He's been on the show. I interviewed him. Oh yeah, Miko. Ago. Yeah, I mean, I re- I read his book. I mean, this guy's dad, his father, he was uh, one of Israel's biggest generals who led uh, the, the victory in 1967. Who then later on turned to be a very, very uh, big, influential peace activist who received a lot of criticism. And obviously, Miko followed his footsteps. Um, and these are people who were born and raised in Israel, not only born and raised in Israel, they're direct descendants of the people who founded the country, uh, like his father. So they maliciously want to always put in Judaism with it. Although, from my perspective, as, as a Muslim person, I think it's totally fine so long as everyone is respectful uh, to deal with either cultural things or things that are that might be wrong or uh, misinterpreted in every religion, as long as we share uh, common respect and you know uh, a good tone of language and discussion. I don't think there's a problem with that. Uh, but I think they tried and and uh, pushed the narrative of anti-Semitism. To, to even Zionism itself. I mean, if you look at the definition of the uh, International uh, Holocaust uh, Remembrance Committee, they, they've, they've put in a couple of years ago 14 uh, clauses for the definition of anti-Semitism. Seven of them relate to Israel as a country. What is this? It's like you talking about uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, as a representative of Islam. I have the right to criticize Saudi Arabia, for example, and and some of its interpretation of Islam or any other uh, Muslim country. That doesn't mean I'm anti-Muslim. I'm anti either that interpretation of Islam uh, or, in Israel's case, that interpretation of Judaism. Or I also have a right to say even that country doesn't have a right to exist. You have a right to say something like that. Yeah, I've, I've no... actually I've said that about Saudi Arabia a few times. I've said, why should there be this particular country whose borders and name were created by the British imperialists? And, you know, why should it be named after their you know, richest family? Uh, but I've never been called uh, an ant- a racist or, you know, an anti-Saudi or something like that for saying that. But if you say similar things about Israel, then uh, you'll never work in this town again. Absolutely. It's supposed to be like a sacred cow. And uh, but people are waking up to this bit by bit because we've said it from day one. You're talking about Israel as an apartheid state. And even myself, I mean, I stated previously, do you know what? Even if you call it the kingdom of Judea and even if it had a king. Okay, but people had equal rights. I don't think many people would have a problem. It isn't about the notion of having a Jewish state. Who cares? In the West, we live in countries uh, that might be defined as Christian. We can live peacefully with each other. It's not about the Jewish people not having a country. It's about having that type of country. It's like you justifying ISIS. Yeah, there there are actually some interesting parallels between the so-called Islamic State and the, the Jewish State. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think actually Islamic State was probably largely created um, by the enemies of Islam who are, in fact, afraid of the reemergence of 
um, the Islamic Ummah, and they wanted to give the whole idea of Islam as an organizing principle for a political entity a bad name. And so they, you know, al-Baghdadi spent uh, several years in American custody, and then they lied and, and said he was only there for less than a year. And it makes you wonder, well, why were they lying? And I, I have to wonder whether, you know, the fact that ISIS was created under the noses of the American guards at uh, Camp Bagram and other camps in, in Iraq uh, you know, suggests that maybe that the Americans or their Israeli handlers like John Israel, the guy who set up the sex torture thing at Abu Ghraib, may have had a hand in creating ISIS. Now, of course, I've, I've been, does that make sense to you? Absolutely makes sense. I mean, al-Baghdadi himself, number one, the name, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, as in they're naming him after the first caliph. Imagine how malicious is that. Secondly, not only was he in prison, he had a special status in prison. He was a special prisoner. And I wonder what the special status included and why this supposedly dangerous person uh, was released from prison. And I also have multiple questions about the pace of takeover of such an... uh, amateur uh, group and many people said that it was infiltrated to the T uh, when it came to uh, international uh, secret services we all know that and I totally wouldn't be surprised because I mean the campaign against Islam as a religion and against Muslims like I said way long before this conflict and when people when there when the movement like you mentioned before of anti-racism started moving to universities and stuff they wanted Islam to be excluded. But then people are, are, are aware to this, like, hold on a second, you, you can't exclude one group. And now, obviously, they're working all the way to keep the Palestinians excluded as well, as if it's something that shouldn't be mentioned. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a human cause, a matter of equality. And by the way, when it comes to universities, Uh, It isn't about just in the West, like yesterday, and I spoke about it uh, in one of my previous videos on my YouTube channel. um, There was this uh, teacher in uh, one Israeli university or school, uh, as far as I remember. She posted uh, something on Facebook to show the atrocities of what the IDF is doing in Gaza. It's not like she's supporting the resistance or whatever. She's just questioning the ethics of the war. She had a massive backla- backlash. It started a fight between students and teachers just simply because they dared to question what they're doing. But that's what they want. They don't want anyone to question anything. I mean, you've had Yair Lapid, who's supposed to be the opposition leader, a guy who's been a journalist for almost 30 years, asking the media not to be objective. He made a statement in the beginning of the war, about two weeks into the war, uh, saying being objective means serving the Hamas. Now, now any person with a sound mind... That's that's admission that he's wrong, right? I mean, if, if the truth is serving your enemy, then you must be on the wrong side. 100%. Plus... How how can someone who spent his whole life in journalism, which is supposed to be about truth finding, uh, investigation, analysis and seeking the truth, 
say that you cannot be objective. How can that, how is that even possible? But this just highlights the mentality of these people. Their mentality is it's my story, it's my side only. You can't hear what the other guy is saying. If you do, even if you listen to them, they label you as anti-Semitic. If you criticize what they're doing. Right. So the situation has gotten really uh, extreme. And, you know, but I think the, uh, the larger world is awakening to the Palestinian cause, uh, the global south, obviously, much faster than the global north. However, the uh, your book, which looks forward to a one state solution in 2048, uh, strikes me as perhaps a, a bit optimistic, given the trends <laughs> within Israel itself. And, well, I, yeah. you know, the, and let me let me just say that the, the demographics, in particular, mm. that show that the, you know, the the support for the extremist right wing parties, the Netanyahu supporters, and the people even more extreme than Netanyahu, keeps growing. And the biggest single reason for that is that those that demographic is having big families, and then the liberal, more sort of Ashkenazi uh, demographic. Like uh, Miko Pellet's family, they're having smaller families. And so every year, demographically, the Israeli Jews get more and more extremist and genocidal, and they're going to be electing worse and worse governments. So, given that, how are we going to reach this kind of reasonable solution that you propose? Okay. Uh, number one, I don't think, again, let me reiterate, there, there shouldn't be anything wrong with being optimistic or even utopic. Like I said, things in history were considered to be utopic and then we, we're, we're enjoying them now as if they're something normal. Uh, however, let me, let me talk about uh, demographics a little bit now. Before the 6th of October, uh, over 1.2 million Israeli Jews were living abroad permanently. However, when it comes to statistics, Israel used to consider them as Jewish people residing in Israel because demographics always plays a role. You've had campaigns previously to expel uh, Palestinians of Israel to the West Bank, like Umm al-Fahim, right? And Wadi Ara area, which is close to uh, the West Bank. There's lots of Arabs there. And one previous um, a defense minister, and he's currently um, a member of Knesset, Avigdor Lieberman, he supported the idea of transferring them because they interfered with the demographics of Israel, because it's all about demographics. Now, post the 6th of October, add one million Jews who are not in Israel, and many of them will most likely not come back because of the situation. You've had groups of Israelis, even since the judicial reform plans for Benjamin Netanyahu, calling for Israelis to leave Israel, discussing what countries are good and safe and nice to live in with good costs and stuff like that. Even today, you've had an article in, in Haaretz talking about this is supposed to be uh, the safe haven for Jews. Yet it's constantly proven that it's the worst place for Jewish people to live in. Now, if you take the grand scheme of things, and that's why, by the way, they didn't allow uh, Palestinian refugees ever to come back. And the Palestinian refugee uh, case was one of the main hurdles in reaching a two-state solution uh, because the Palestinian side was insistent that we can't give, give up their rights. They need to be allowed to come back, but Israel will, would never agree to such a thing because it would interfere with their demographics, with their obsession with having uh, a Jewish majority. 
But if you talk about from the river to the sea, right? If you talk, talk about Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, you're talking about a Palestinian majority. I mean, we've had a Palestinian majority from, from since a few years back, but now you're having an even greater majority. You're talking about approximately 7.6 million Palestinians in total, including Palestinian citizens of Israel, in comparison to 4.9 million Jewish Israelis, excluding the ones who fled. Even if you bring those who fled back, although uh, most of them will not come back, you're still talking about a Palestinian majority. And this is what Israel is petrified of. And again, it baffles me that these people are petrified by this. Because if you have a democracy, people would vote in whoever they want to vote for. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And my argument even is, if you bring an Israeli leader, for example, who would come and solve the Palestinian cause, right? Call it whoever you want to call it. Don't you think even Palestinian people would would vote for him? Don't, don't you think would refugees vote for him because he allowed them to come back, for example? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. it's it, yeah. yeah. Well, well, with some of the people who sort of de- defend the Israeli, uh, you know, racist obsession with demographics, and you know, some of these people uh, hang around uh, at. Uh, Unz.com, UNZ, where I publish. I'm, I'm sort of the, the token uh, radical Muslim truther <laughs> at Unz. Yeah. Uh, but some of these people argue <laughs> that uh, they say, yes, we see your you know, comparison with, uh, let's say, uh, South Africa. However, we don't think South Africa is in a good place right now. And, you know, we make these various comparisons between South Africa today and South Africa before the end of apartheid. And say that, you know, it's 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 actually gotten worse, especially for white South Africans. And so, you know, from that perspective, they say that the Israeli Jews who don't want to accept this Palestinian majority you're talking about, which you're right, it, it, in historic Palestine, the Palestinians are still a majority. And, and these uh, these Jewish settler colonialists don't want to accept that. But there are these people who, who say, well, we kind of understand how they feel. Now, my I've argued with these people and said, you know, I, I think that there are actually major differences between uh, Palestine and South Africa. Number Well, number one, South Africa is not as bad as you guys think. And number two, the differences are such that I don't I think Palestine would turn out very differently if you had a one state uh, with official with equality. I, I think actually Jews in Palestine would do pretty well under that uh, situation, assuming that we can get there without uh, tremendous you know, animosity reaching the point that it becomes hopeless to ever fix. And that's what I would be concerned about is that what's happening right now could uh, lead to that animosity. Anyway, anyway, your your comments on the various kinds of you know problems and obstacles and and reasons, why, you know whether there's any legitimacy to the concern of Jewish Israelis that oh if we you know if we go to a one state solution with equal rights for everybody that it it could actually make our situation worse. Yeah, I th- I think the um, this notion it, it's I I feel like it's also stemming from a, a racist background as well. Like, don't forget, number one, th- there's a difference between Palestine and South Africa. You, we need to establish that if things are similar in, in certain elements, there's still unique elements to the Palestinian cause. And it's not the same as uh, South Africa, whether it's from the 
uh, percentage of, of blacks versus whites and the whole geography of everything. So it's quite different. Uh, however, we must not forget that many South Africans fled and they implemented their rule based on apartheid, religious supremacy, right? It's definitely different because in Palestine, well, we've lived with Jews for centuries. It's not as if uh, Jewish people haven't been there. As a matter of fact, if you want to talk about Jewish people actually rooted in Palestine, you would look at the Shomroni, Asamiriyun, who are based in Nablus, near Nablus, right? In um, Mount Grizim. They consider that to be uh, their holy site, unlike what uh, Zionists claim to be um, uh, Al-Aqsa, right? They, they say that's our uh, Har Harayit. Mount Temple is Har Grizim. And there's lots of uh, archaeology to support their claim, by the way. Now, these people, they've been there for thousands of years. They look like Arabs. They speak Arabic. Uh, they share many traditions. And they're in the middle of the West Bank. Have people not asked themselves that they haven't faced any harm forever? They haven't faced any harm from Palestinians because they know they've been their, their neighbors for hundreds of years. Whereas these new settlers who force themselves on stolen land, uh, hey, presto, they're the ones facing uh, trouble. Well, why are you facing trouble? Because you came and stole a land. It's like people don't understand that. I mean, Golda Meir herself, the pre previous Israeli and only female Israeli prime minister, she described the moments when she came uh, to Haifa after the Nakba. And she said, when I came to these homes, I saw freshly brewed coffee in some of them, cooked food, and the families of, of, of and the owners of that house are not there. And there was chaos because the terrorist Zionist militias terrorized everyone out of their homes in Haifa, likewise with, with all of Palestine. But I'm just focusing on Haifa because that's my native city. And she herself... She said, when I saw those scenes, I uh, just remembered the, the ghettos of, of Europe and the Jewish people. So imagine, th these people know these things. And even in, uh, in, uh, in other situations, uh, people spoke about, like new, uh, Isra uh, new Jewish people who came and migrated, some of them were offered, many of them, lots of them, houses of Palestinian families who were just expelled from their homes. And most of them took them. But some people couldn't accept that. Like, uh, again, that, that, that's also mentioned in uh, Miko Pellet's book. I think his, mother's, his mother was uh, one of those people. So you, you're talking about people with, uh, with a mentality that's different to normal human beings. Like, how can anyone uh, have it in their heart to go and reside in a house that wasn't theirs two hours ago, let alone force them out like what they do regularly in the West Bank and in Jerusalem? Regularly. Well, there, there's said to be an Israeli proverb, if I don't steal it, somebody's going to steal it. Exactly. And you know this man, funny enough, this guy, he's from New York, uh, ex-con, they send the criminals to the West Bank and these places, uh, give them money uh, just to steal Palestinian homes. And, 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 and yet no one 
seems to highlight these things. And that's a small, like Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, it's a very small uh, example of how it is in the whole of the West Bank on an ongoing basis. You just take that and uh, time time it by 1,000, right? If not even more, on a regular basis. That's an abnormal situation. No decent human being would accept that. And yet they come and uh, start criticizing the Palestinians uh, for any reaction. Palestine as a land is like a woman who has been continuously raped for decades when when the people around it are looking. And all of a sudden, when that woman wakes up and slaps its rapist, all of the world starts shouting. That's what we're seeing at the moment. And this has to end and this will end. But it won't end unless people continue to fight for the cause of the Palestinians to have equality and universal human rights like every single person deserves nowadays. Well, well let, let's say we got to that one state solution. It was, you know, it's going to be implemented. And of course, one of the, the sticking points that the Zionists have always pointed to is, is again, because of their demographic obsession, that uh, the right of return, that is the ethnic cleansing victims, people who were terrorized out of their homes as, as you know, thousands, thousands of Palestinians were murdered. And the Zionist militias were saying, well, you're next, get out. And people had to flee, as you say, leaving fresh coffee brew, leaving food on the table and flee for their lives. Some of them were strafed from the air and, and many killed as they were fleeing. And so all this Palestinian diaspora that resulted from the Nakba, uh, is, according to the United Nations and international law, has the right to return. That right of return has been uh, repeatedly enshrined by the United Nations now, the Zionists say we can't allow that because then our demographic situation will get even worse. Um, so how, how could that be implemented in a way that kind of assuages the fears of the Zionists? Uh, like we're, I think you proposed perhaps, you know, some ideas for, for you know, how many Palestinians would actually return uh, how fast. Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, obviously, we need to understand that to reach that uh, Zionism as it's defined at the moment, uh, either as a whole or as it is defined or and always has been defined. So unless you want to redefine Zionism or completely eliminate it, we need to do that first. Uh, secondly, so once you defeat that ideology, it wouldn't be a problem anymore because Zionism goes against human values. It's It's against human equality. It's based on racial supremacy right so that must be defeated the whole narrative and the whole uh, existence of zionism as it is uh, must end and and i'm being particular because my argument is if you, if you want to call yourself a zionist in terms of your love or want to live in israel i'm i have no problem with that my problem is you calling yourself whatever the hell you want to call yourself and enforcing a brutal oppression against other people. I have a problem with that, whether it comes from Jewish people, whether it comes from Muslims or Christians or atheists. I have a problem with the, with the elements of that. That's why I'm so specific. Uh, however, with the refugees, it's very simple. You deal with it as you would deal with any situation of a big influx of people into a land. You take it stage by stage, 
You obviously need to have referendums uh, before that. And you need to address it in a very strategic manner when it comes to housing these people, compensating them, putting them in the labor market, all of these things. And uh, at the end of the day, it won't be a problem so long as the root cause of the problem, we get rid of it, which is Zionism as it's defined at the moment, because it appears to be that Zionism is, is quite dynamic, right? And it's, it's becoming ever increasingly more radical with time. And the thing here is that everyone needs to understand uh, between 1,000 uh, quotes, right? Liberal Zionism or like left-wing Zionism is, is as, just as bad as what's happening now, as this right-wing Zionism. The only difference is these people uh, in power, Netanyahu and his radical right-wing uh, extremist religious Zionists, they're just doing everyone a favor by actually saying things as they are and not sugarcoating themselves and hiding be, uh, behind 1,000 curtains. So they did everyone a favor. So that ideology must be defeated. It's, it's a cancerous ideology. It's an ideology that goes against every good human value. It's an ideology that goes against Judaism, number one. First and foremost, Zionism is anti-Judaism. Zionism has been the worst thing for Jewish people because they created a state where Jews constantly live in fear, constantly saying everyone hates us, constantly saying why they want to kill us, not realizing that they're the actual culprits, right? So it, 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 it made Jews the most unsafe throughout the whole world. I mean, what Israel is doing now and speaking in the name of Judaism, that's what's increasing. Uh, acts against Jews across the globe. Obviously, we're against that and we condemn uh, any attacks on uh, any person because of their background. But if you want to talk what's contributing to that, that's what's contributing to that. And the people in the West who are actually supporting this country committing one of the worst genocides, it's not the worst genocide of the 20th century against the Palestinian people. Yeah, it's it's in some ways it's uh, surprising that there isn't even more animosity towards Jewish people when the self-proclaimed Jewish state is <laughs> is doing this, you know, and and and, and not, because know, take, we woke up said, to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well we we only have about uh, a minute left, so let's uh, send people to your your book and YouTube channel. I see your your website with the book is Mahmoud Od, and is that how do you pronounce the Od part? I just saw it as O-D. Well, there's many ways you can write O-D. So I just made it a shortcut, O and D, literally. Uh, there's uh, multiple ways to write it, but it's Mahmoud, M-A-H-M-O-O-D, O-D, dot com. That's my website. And my YouTube channel is at Mahmoud, M-A-H-M-O-O-D, uh, lowercase um, O-D. Uh, that's my YouTube channel. Okay, well, you've got fans out there because some of them contacted me and alerted me to your excellent work. And <laughs> yeah, good shout, to hear shout that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, shout out uh, to all of them. Yeah. 
Well, thank you. Keep keep up the great work. I, I appreciate uh, your thoughtful uh, consideration of this whole issue and your ability to stay calm under the circumstances. I mean, I have a hard time staying calm. I'm not Palestinian, but I look at this and, you know, I, I have to mm. <laughs> try to restrain myself uh, from saying things I'm going to regret or even maybe doing things I'm going to regret. Uh, yeah. And so I, you're able, you know, you're really keeping a, a level head and a thoughtful approach to the whole thing. And I, I do appreciate that and inspired by it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I mean, you have to be calm at the end of the day because there's no point in rallying yourself and everyone out because at the end of the day, we're looking for a solution uh, that, we, that needs to be good for everyone. We obviously need to set an example uh, on how to get there. Okay. Well, thank you. Playful. Take care. Mahmoud Odi at Mahmoud Odi.com.